I'd like to share with you an incredible story to begin with. A small group of Adventist youth heard God calling them to reach people living in a very difficult and dangerous area. Before moving ahead, they spent much time in prayer pleading with God to guide them. Along Tanzania's Indian Ocean coast lies a town of more than 8,000 inhabitants. The town is predominantly of a non-Christian faith with more than 99% of its inhabitants belonging to that religion. It is known to be a highly superstitious area, causing many people to fear that town and its people. Several attempts were made over the years to introduce the townspeople to the three angels' messages, but none was successful. In the year 2000, however, a group of young people dared to conduct an evangelistic series in that town. Knowing the work before them was delicate and risky, they decided to spend two weeks in earnest prayer, pleading for God to intervene for the salvation of these people. Amazingly, a few days later, they actually received permission from the town government to hold religious meetings there. It then became public knowledge that young Adventists would be conducting those meetings. The young people continued to pray earnestly, choosing to have their special prayer times early in the morning by the seashore before the people of the town were awake. The young Adventists faithfully met by the sea every morning before dawn, crying to the Lord on behalf of the townspeople and for the meetings. One morning, a few young people, again, were sent by the town elders to go and kill these young Adventists before they started their meetings in town. They learned that the Adventists started their day in prayer by the sea at 5 o'clock in the morning, and they decided that would be the best place and time to kill them. So one morning, the would-be killers went to the shore and found the Adventist youth kneeling in earnest prayer by the sea. As they approached ready to kill, the attackers saw a wall of fire surrounding the Adventist youth. And obviously, they were shocked and dared not attack. Terrified, they ran away. The Adventist young people went on with their plans and started the meetings, but the elders of the city were determined to stop them. They sent their youth again to steal their equipment and furniture that were being used for the meeting in an open area. But one night when they approached the place where the equipment was being held, the would-be thieves saw a very tall man wearing a white gown, holding a shining sword, and walking around the equipment. <laughs> they again failed to execute their wicked plan. Finally, the elders in the city said to their youth, you are cowards and don't know how to do these things. We will take matters into our own hands and destroy these Adventist young people. Soon after, as the meetings were going on in an open area, uh, two elderly people dressed in full traditional regalia walked through the crowd heading toward the front where one of the young Adventists was preaching. But before they reached the front, the town elders started running and jumping, screaming, We're burning! We're burning! They rushed toward the preacher, but then went out behind him. While no one saw any flames at all, the attackers acted as though they were on fire. Later, these same leaders explained how they wanted to attack the preacher, but again they saw a wall of fire surrounding him. After this, the young men of the town approached the Adventist young people inquiring about the superstitious powers they were evidently using to protect themselves against the attacks. 
And the Adventist youth told him they didn't believe in superstition and would have nothing to do with it. <laughs> the Adventists happily explained that they had the living God of heaven and the protection of divine angels sent by God. Came a big story, as you can imagine, all across that town and surrounding towns, and in the end, many people were baptized. Amen. A journalist came and reported the story in a nationwide newspaper. There are now three organized churches in that town with a total membership of nearly 200 people. Amen. So, shall we take our Bibles and look up a text in the Old Testament? Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 5. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about. And will be the glory in the midst of her. Do you think that prophecy was fulfilled? Amen. How about God's miracles? Sanctified Life, page 13. Heavenly angels bend lovingly over them and are as a wall of fire round about them. In Heavenly Places, page 30. We shall walk among the angels. They will be like a wall of fire about us. And we shall one day walk with them in the city of God. So, God has foreseen and prepared for opposition to the work that we are involved in. Who qualifies for this protection of a wall of fire? I'm going to say anyone who stands for truth and is doing God's will qualifies. Anyone. It can be you. It can be me. A sample of this spirit of standing firm for truth and giving God's message was seen 130 years ago. Uh, towards the end of the 19th century, there was a religious movement impelled to campaign to formally recognize Sunday as the day of rest in the United States. They wanted to unite the country. They wanted to promote morality among the people by getting everyone back to church on Sunday. Good motives. Different Protestant churches, reformed groups, Temperance movements mobilized together into a political religious coalition and they found a champion to lead their cause in Congress. U.S. Republican Senator from New Hampshire, Henry W. Blair. Senator Blair, a staunch prohibitionist and an ardent Christian, proposed a national Sunday rest bill to Congress, Senate Bill 2983 on May 21, 1888. They would have amended the U.S. Constitution by this bill and established Sunday as the mandatory day of worship for everyone under the jurisdiction of the United States in the name of education. Commercial transactions would have ceased on that day. Public amusements would have ended. Interstate commerce would be suspended. All festivities, secular activities, parades, military drills... After Senator Blair introduced his legislation, his fellow lawmakers referred the Sunday Rest Bill to the Senate Committee on Education and Labor. Testimony was heard from the committee by both sides. And Alonzo T. Jones, a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, professor, editor, and administrator, lodged the strongest protest against this Sunday measure. Jones spoke boldly and clearly before the U.S. Senate Committee on December 13, 1888, and he said, The government has no right 
to make any law relating to the things that pertain to God or offenses against God or religion. The government has nothing to do with religion. Attempting to legislate the Sabbath would be a terrible infringement that both the Bible and the U.S. Constitution strongly prohibited. Jones stressed that even if the government reflected the will of a majority, it had no more authority than has a king or a pope to violate the God-given liberty of conscience and freedom to worship. He concluded his testimony by saying that government should leave religion to every man's conscience and his God. And these words left a lasting impression on that Senate committee. And as a result, the Sunday Rest Bill and Christian Education Amendment failed to receive the necessary votes to move on, and it died in committee. Stopped right there. However, Senator Blair was not phased by this defeat. He resubmitted variations of the Sunday Law Bill on December 9, 1889. But in every instance that he tried, he was met with the same fate, failure to get the necessary votes in committee. This was a great victory, of course, for God and God's people and for religious liberty. But in 1892, Sunday law agitators were able to make up some ground again with another national Sunday bill. Senate Bill 2168, the purpose of this bill was to prohibit opening on Sunday any exposition or exposition for which the United States government makes appropriations. So this bill was essentially saying that if the U.S. government was to fund any major event, fairs or otherwise, Sunday would have to be kept sacred. This was done in anticipation of the largest, most significant commercial event in the history of the United States up to that time, the Columbian Exhibition, also known as the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. Even though this bill failed to pass through the Senate, it inspired another effort to push through a Sunday law. The second measure was introduced through the House of Representatives, a Sunday civil bill loaning $5 million to the Chicago World's Fair conditioned on Sunday closing. And this House bill actually passed and was made law on August 5, 1892. So the Sunday agitators finally achieved their objective through some stealth. Now this was not just any fair. Uh, this was a fair that would last six months. People from around the world would attend. And yet, unknown to everyone, the event planners for the Chicago World's Fair retracted the condition of staying closed on Sunday. They saw financial benefit for staying open seven days a week. So they opened the fair on Sunday, and all 65,000 booths and exhibits began to conduct their business. The people came in droves, hundreds of thousands daily. And this, of course, caused a volatile response from the angered Sunday law agitators who demanded that everything be closed immediately. They began to picket and campaign with the strongest denunciations. It began a national debate, and the Sunday law agitators began to lobby Congress to enforce the law. Even the Roman Catholic Church took advantage of all this controversy over Sunday closing. The uh, very famous Roman Catholic Cardinal Gibbons from Chicago 
gave his very famous Rome's Challenge during the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. He wrote a series of articles that challenged openly Protestants as to why they should keep Sunday holy and why they were fighting for something that belonged to the Roman Catholic Church. Rome was laughing at all the controversy as they saw the Protestant churches fighting to establish Sunday laws in America. Again, for the glory of God, Alonzo Jones met that challenge. Once again, in 1892 and 1893, he took up the challenge to speak in defense of religious liberty and to denounce the oppression by the national churches in using the arm of the state to impose their religion. In 1892 and 1893, Jones stood before the U.S. Congress and spoke to the House Committee on Columbian Exhibition. This time he came with a signed petition of more than 350,000 signatures from U.S. citizens who were opposed to this Sunday law. As a result, the government held its peace and allowed the fair to stay open on Sunday. So there were two clear voices that uh, came from all these debates and confusion. Number one, Rome's clear statement that Sunday is her day and her mark, it was called. And all those who support this institution are honoring the papacy and not the Lord of the Bible. And number two, A.T. Jones stood out on the side of truth and righteousness. God will always have a people, my friends, who will stand to oppose what Satan is doing. Praise God for that. Amen. Now, let's bring this issue down to our time. The world saw many shocking images as rioters forced their way into the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. One of the most disturbing was the sight of a large flag unfurled outside the Capitol. Designed to look like a campaign banner, the flag suggested that the unfolding chaos had an endorsement from an unlikely source. It simply read, Jesus 2020. And that was the flag outside the Capitol that day. There's no doubt that a movement and ideology known as Christian nationalism motivated at least some of those who rampaged through the halls of Congress that day. Christian nationalism is an attempt to link Christianity with national identity. The idea that to be a true patriot, one must also be a Christian. Individuals believe that hostile forces are assailing a once Christian nation and Christians are therefore called to battle these forces to regain lost territory for their faith. And it's hardly surprising then that the ideology of Christian nationalism is shot through with ugly threads of hate toward any ethnic or religious minority that is perceived to be out of step with the dominant form of Christianity. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is very clear on how it views Christian nationalism. This ideology is antithetical to our theology and beliefs. It is alien to our deeply held values. The church, its various institutions, and its representatives will never align with any political party or political ideology. We will not seek political preference. 
and we do not use our influence with political or civil leaders to either advance our faith or inhibit the faith of others. Seventh-day Adventists should not seek to harness political power to create a uniquely Christian public square. In any of its forms and variants, Christian nationalism will always damage our witness to the gospel. But these noble words have not always worked out in modern practice. A pastor wrote recently of his plans to leave a very successful ministry career earlier than expected. He said, the last year has been tough. I have decided to retire. I have had a hard time figuring out how religion and politics got so tangled up in even the Adventist church. And his lament has been echoed a dozen times of people who tell by unprecedented conflict in the congregations or institutions that they serve. Honesty forces us to look at the ghastly spectacle of American politics as it is being carried out today, in which a winner-takes-all imperative drives partisanship and polarization on a scale never before witnessed in our lifetime. Not even the remnant church could be immune to the slash-and-burn strategies that have pitted races against each other, the protection of accumulated wealth against the well-being of the poor, and made enemies of those who previously could sometimes be gracious with each other about their political or theological differences. Unfortunately, the church now often mirrors the culture. The church's struggle is always with itself. Can we covenant to live together with all our differences in skin color, in wealth, in political viewpoints? Can we live together as God wants this movement to? The gospel's call to teach and practice the virtue of humility is the most countercultural act of which the believing church is capable. Are we willing to listen patiently to each other, acknowledge the possibility of our own mistakenness, and gather around our shared commitment to the Lord? Friends, we are citizens of a different kingdom, even though we enjoy the freedoms of our nation. Without the essential quality of humility, the remnant church is only a fractious collection of theological partisans held tenuously together by tradition and custom, and that's not good enough. The witness that wins the world is the revelation of a people who refuse the polarization wrought by prejudice and pride, and who practice the humility without which there can be no community of believers. Now I want to focus on one sentence in Ellen White's writings. You've heard it and read it before. National apostasy will speedily be followed by national ruin. She wrote that in 1897. National apostasy will speedily be followed by national ruin. Some have read this above statement and concluded that the current pope is working to bring the United States and the rest of the world under his dominion by way of a leftward shift in the politics of the nations. And they conclude that things like socialism, globalism, environmental policies will bring this nation to financial ruin. But is this how prophecy portrays the string of events leading to the end times? Now, there's no doubt about it. 
Satan is going to use all sides of the political spectrum to bring about his plan and eventually lead to the time of trouble. He'll take left, he'll take center, he'll take right. He doesn't care. He'll use any method to get confusion and divisiveness among God's people and the world. But inspiration spells out often in remarkable detail the steady trend of events to take place in the near future. Wouldn't it be better to allow the inspired writings to guide us since we claim to believe that she was the messenger for this time and the end of the world? Number one, the greatest danger to liberty in America is not an overbearing state or a leftist government controlling its people. The greatest threat to liberty is the combining of church and state, instigated not primarily by a pope, but by Protestants. Let's read it. When Protestant churches shall unite with the secular power to sustain a false religion, then will the papal Sabbath be enforced by the combined authority of church and state. There will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. Evangelism, page 235. Now note, Protestant churches are the impetus here. That's what it says. Protestant churches will unite with the state. They unite with the state to sustain a false religion. And Sunday enforcement is the dominant issue. Sunday enforcement. So church and state unite. And this results in national apostasy. And this brings national ruin. Number two, in America, it is not Catholics that will be foremost in bringing us under tyranny. It is Protestantism. Great Controversy 615. Romanism in the old world and apostate Protestantism in the new will pursue a similar course toward those who honor all the divine precepts. Number three. The greatest threat to liberty is not from the state, but from an apostate church. Great Controversy 581. Let the principle once be established in the United States that the church may employ or control the power of the state, that religious observances may be enforced by secular laws, in short, that the authority of church and state is to dominate the conscience and the triumph of Rome in this country is assured. So who's in control? The church. The church may employ or control. What do they enforce? Religious observances. What is it that assures the triumph of Rome in the United States? A redistribution of wealth, socialism, environmental policies, globalism? No, it is when the Protestant church controls the secular state and enforces religious observances. Now this pattern of the apostate church dominating the state is seen throughout history. Remember the Roman state was Pilate at that time? He tried to save Jesus from the cross and the apostate church leaders mobilizing the masses demanded, manipulated, and pressured until the state finally gave in. Dark Ages, same thing. The apostate Christian church of that time dominated and controlled the secular state and together they persecuted millions. At the start of this, so we, we quoted, national apostasy will be followed by national ruin.
Some will then apply this to what they perceived to be a looming threat of leftist welfare policies, of redistribution of wealth and socialism and globalism promoted by Pope Francis and welcomed by the new leftist government in America. This is apparently how the United States will come to national ruin in their thinking. However, in the writings of Ellen White, whenever the phrase national ruin is applied to the United States, the context is in relation to Sunday legislation. This is brought on by agitation, not primarily from Catholic sources, but from leading Protestant churches that produce the national apostasy leading to national ruin. The issue in the final conflict is, as we've always believed it to be, Sunday versus Sabbath, not capitalism versus socialism. Church affiliation, by the way, is not the best indicator of the future actions of a government leader. We need to look a little deeper at their policies and philosophy and past actions. In a 2008 Washington Post article, George W. Bush could well be the nation's first Catholic president. Yes, there was John F. Kennedy, but where Kennedy sought to divorce his religion from his office, Bush has welcomed Roman Catholic doctrine and teachings into the White House and based many important domestic policy decisions on them. Rick Santorum is a former U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania and a devout Catholic, and he was the first to give Bush the Catholic president label. He's certainly, he said, much more Catholic than Kennedy. But inspiration now, back to inspiration, focuses on religious legislation, the joining of church and state, the enforcement of Sunday, all propelled in America by Protestants. When our nation in its legislative councils shall enact laws to bind the consciences of men in regard to their religious privileges, enforcing Sunday observance, and bringing oppressive power to bear against those who keep the seventh day Sabbath, the law of God will to all intents and purposes be made void in our land, and national apostasy will be followed by national ruin. Bible Commentary Volume 7, 977. To secure popularity and patronage, she said, in legislators will yield to the demand for a Sunday law. The demand, remember, not something done behind closed doors. The demand comes from the people, and that's obviously religious people, demanding a Sunday law. And they yield to that. Last day events, 132. Protestants are following in the steps of papists, nay more, they are opening the door for the papacy to regain in Protestant America the supremacy which he has lost in the old world. Opening the door by Protestants, not primarily by Catholics. So, inspiration, not conjecture, not speculation, Inspiration repeatedly warns of the threat to civil and religious liberties coming primarily from Protestant churches, who having lost their ability to persuade society through their version of the gospel, have decided to turn to coercion 
to make people Christians. Apostate Christians, the Protestant churches of America, have been and increasingly will be moving to compel the state to enforce her dogma and sustain her institutions. Nowhere that I have read in the writings of Ellen White does she indicate that America will impose a left-wing, atheistic, humanistic system of tyranny as a prelude to the reactionary response from the right-wing to then bring in religious laws? Listen to this, Great Controversy 592. Even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Notice, America is still spoken of as free when rulers and legislators give in to the public pressure demanding the enforcement of Sunday observance. Instead of a left-wing tyranny that supposedly leads up to a time when the mark of the beast is enforced, America will still be free according to the words of inspiration. And I simply say, shouldn't we trust God on this one? And let his inspired word be our guide. It is not a bad thing to be aware of what is happening around us. We need to know what forces are at work. But when we are predicting how this nation will come to national ruin, let's stay with inspiration. Now, let's expand this a little bit to some basic biblical principles. Open your Bible with me and turn to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now, a particular individual by the name of Chris Barker an imperial wizard with the Ku Klux Klan relied upon this verse to support his way of doing things. He declared, Leviticus 19.18 is not what you say, love thy neighbor. I'm telling you, Leviticus 19, love thy neighbor says, love thy neighbor of thy people. My people are white, your people are black. Now it's true that the qualifiers of your people, your kin, and your people demonstrates that the term neighbor is used here with a specific reference to fellow Israelites. A few verses later on, you find the same thing. Leviticus 19, verse 33. And if a stranger sojourn with you in your land, ye shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Obviously, these are foreigners who came to Israel for protection, and uh, they were within the land of Israel. So, how does Jesus resolve this issue? What does he say about this? He had a public debate with an expert in the Torah, and the expert asks a crucial question. If you want to turn to it, it is Luke chapter 10. He asks the simple question, and who is my neighbor? That's the question. And who is my neighbor? And so in Luke chapter 10, Jesus told the story of the merciful Samaritan. That was the story Jesus used 
in response to this particular question. Um, let's read a little farther here. Chapter 10, verse 36. Luke chapter 10, verse 36. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? The parable obviously permits only one reply. So the law expert's query could mean when he asked, who is my neighbor? Who am I to recognize as a neighbor? Possibility one. Or possibility two, how am I to act as a neighbor? The expert wanted the former. Jesus intentionally chose the latter. How am I to act as a neighbor? That was the issue of the Good Samaritan parable. How am I to act when I see someone in trouble? What will my response be? Jesus consciously applies the term neighbor according to what the benefactor does and not according to whom it is done. The law expert wanted to use the word neighbor as a noun. Who is my neighbor? Jesus read it as a verb. How am I to be a neighbor? How can I be neighborly, in other words? I am the neighbor, and what I do for or against the other, irrespective of their identity, culture, color, creed, uh, culture, or condition, confirms my status as a neighbor. So contrary to Barker, it isn't saying what he wants it to say in Leviticus 19. The Good Samaritan parable is about as far removed from white supremacist ideology as it possibly could be. All right, I'm going to finish this up. I'm not going to take a long time with this. I've said what I really wanted to say. I'm going to share with you Prophets and Kings, page 188 and 189. Among earth's inhabitants, scattered in every land, there are those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Like the stars of heaven, which appear only at night, these faithful ones will shine forth when darkness covers the earth and gross darkness the people. In heathen Africa, in the Catholic lands of Europe and of South America, in China, in India, in the islands of the sea, and in all the dark corners of the earth, God has in reserve a firmament of chosen ones that will yet shine forth amid the darkness. Even now they are appearing in every nation, among every tongue and people, and in the hour of deepest apostasy, when Satan's supreme effort is made to cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive under penalty of death the sign of allegiance to a false rest day, these faithful ones, blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, will shine as lights in the world, the darker the night, the more brilliantly will they shine. Prophets and Kings, 188 and 189. I pray we'll be among that group. Amen. That shine the brightest when the darkness really hits. It's twilight right now, folks. Mm -hmm. We're not in darkness just yet. I'll leave you with a very thoughtful comment that someone made, I have no idea who, on the great controversy. Whom have you left behind to carry out the work? Asked the angels. A little band of men and women who love me, replied the Lord Jesus. But what if they should fail when the trial comes? Will all you have done be defeated? Yes, if they should fail, all I have done will be defeated. But they will not fail, Amen. Jesus replies. And a little poem. Wilt thou follow me, the Savior asked. The road looked bright and fair and filled with youthful hope and zeal. I answered, anywhere. Wilt thou follow me? Again he asked. 
The road looked dim ahead, but I gave one glance at his glowing face to the end, dear Lord, I said. Wilt thou follow me? I almost blanched, for the road was rough and new. But I felt the grip of his steady hand, and it thrilled me through and through. Still followest thou? T'was a tender tone, and it thrilled my inmost heart. I answered not, but he drew me close, and I knew we would never part. Mm. That's the way it's going to end, friends. That's the way. The way lies through Gethsemane, friends, for us too. It lies through the city gate. It lies outside the camp. The way lies alone, alone. And the way lies until there is no trace of a footstep that we can place our feet in. Only the voice, follow me. Mm. But in the end, it leads to the joy set before him and to the mount of God. No matter what happens in the future, no matter how many forces conspire to destroy God's faithful people, we have the promise. Let's depend on it. Let's be a part of that final movement. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that nothing will distract us, nothing will divide us, that we will look always and only to thee and thy inspired testimony of what we are to expect and how we are to prepare for it. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.